0: I would like to recommend (laughs) Conflict and this is a book by Andrew Roberts and General Petraeus covering basically all the the minor wars post-second world war really and it's a book of two halves although uh, I believe you know both authors worked on the manuscript entirely but the first half seems to be largely covered by Andrew Roberts as I say covering these conflicts There's great thumbnail biographies. He's particularly good on Vietnam as well, not just the military aspect, but obviously the personalities and the the politics involved. And the second half then shifts in tone, style, structure, where, you know, General Petraeus was was basically had a bird's eye view of Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's a great inside portrait of, I don't know, some of the sort of chaos and lack of planning you also he's healthily critical of of administrations both republican and democrat and he's kind of a sympathetic towards the soldier but also sympathetic toward you know the people that that suffered under these regimes and campaigns
2: Hello and welcome to the pod and in this bonus episode I have a team of novelists and historians joining to chat about our favourite books of the year. We're going from the ancient world up to the war in Ukraine with plenty in between. It's a relaxed chat which also delves into current events so please do indulge us on that but it may be interesting to get insights from my guests. If you have any questions or comments please do get in touch on X or email me history at aspectsofhistory.com Please note, the recording was made on the 17th of November, so bear in mind when considering current events. A list of the books mentioned in the chat are in the show notes, as well as links to previous episodes of the pod. Do get in touch, I'm always keen to hear from listeners, but until then I'm going to hand you over to me introducing Aspects of History's Books of the Year. Welcome to the Aspects of History 2023 Books of the Year podcast and for those listeners who were here with us six months ago when we did our sort of halfway, uh, it's the same guests again. So we have distinguished historians, authors, writers with us. So I'll, I'll run through who our panel members are today, listeners, it is Roger Morehouse, distinguished, acclaimed historian. All of those. We have Antonia Senior, a novelist and the Times historical fiction reviewer. Right, yeah, that's me. And, and Richard Foreman, novelist, publisher,
0: prolific, best-selling publisher, Richard Foreman. Uh, Thank you. Did any of the other panel pick up how disappointed he said when the same people are here? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh,
3: uh.
1: Yeah, there was a whiff of that.
0: Well, as before, listeners,
2: there have been a few drinks consumed, so that might be why uh, people laughed along to that very unfunny (laughs) comment. So we're going to kick off with our Books of the Year, and I'm going to start. And, listeners, you may have listen to previous episodes with some of the authors here you, and some of the authors have not appeared on the podcast uh, but what we decided to do was to have a nice informal chat where we're all going to talk about the books that we really enjoyed 2023 and i i'm going to start with a book that came out in September the book is called One Fine Day written by Matthew Parker it's One Fine Day it's about the it, it's it's an account of one day when the british empire reached its territorial extent which was the 29th of september greatest territorial extent the greatest territorial extent thank you roger yes roger you're quite right greatest territorial extent 29th of september 1923 which topically it's the british mandate of palestine but what I'd like to say about this book and the reason why I thought it was so, um, so I, I was so impressed by it is that it, it really does it picks this one day but it covers the whole empire and so it's, it's sort of an extraordinary achievement because it looks at both the colonised the colonisers it, and it doesn't, it's not judgy in any way, it just looks at it impartially and uh, what that's what I love, you know. I don't really. Um, I suspect I know what Matthew thinks about the empire, but I didn't know that from having read the book, and so uh, it gives a voice to I think uh, people who didn't really have a voice before in in um, uh, in that period of the empire, and and there's some just fascinating stories coming out of it. I mean, in particular, the one part I love was him looking at Malaya, and I talked him about this is I'm a big fan of Somerset Maugham and Somerset Maugham travels to Malaya and stays with a lot of these um, planters um, and and it's just he he looks at it from Somerset's Maugham point of view the subjects of Somerset Maugham's um, uh, uh, novels but also the um the Malayans themselves and it just gives a really rounded picture if i just picked one country in the empire that was hugely economically important to the uh, british empire at the time
1: i think it's i mean it's an absolutely wonderful premise give him that i think it's it, it, the idea behind it i remember talking to him it must have been i mean it's been quite a long a few years in the production this one hasn't it Something like, I'm, I feel like... Eight, eight years. Eight maybe. years. One I five gonna,
0: decade.
1: I was going to say seven years, but yeah, so something like that. I remember talking to him a long time ago um, where I think he just had the idea or he just signed it or whatever, but uh, I remember thinking, well, that's a brilliant idea um, mm. for a book. And, I, and I'm delighted to see it out and mm. doing so well. Um, and
3: doesn't it start with sort of sunrise in one bit and then move across to sunset in another bit of The Empire, isn't it? It
2: does, but not so it's not so rigid because yeah. it does sort of del- it goes forward and back in time um so it isn't sort of rigidly sticking to the as as you, you know like the sun rising and setting in the british mm-hmm. empire uh, but you know he uses he makes a lot of use of of the newspaper mm-hmm. articles at the time which which gives a fascinating he was saying mm-hmm. even the adverts tell you something mm-hmm. in the in the in the newspapers yeah
0: I mean, it was a little bit delayed because of COVID. You know, just the the library yes. was, was no longer open, and, and that was almost his office. I mean, I saw him there a few times. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, okay, that was that was mine. Uh, uh, I've done one for me. So, why don't we go to my left, Antonia Senior? Uh
3: yeah. Um. Well, I mean, as we were just mentioned, Palestine. Um. One of my books of the year. It it, it is kind of quite. Topical. It's a book called Adama by a writer called Lavi Tidhar. Uh, and I apologise for my, um, my my Hebrew pronunciation such as it is, but apparently it, so the title comes from a Hebrew proverb that says, without Adama which means earth or land uh, you can't have Adama without dam, which means blood. Um, and that's at the root of this book which starts uh, with a um a woman called Ruth uh, at the end of the second world war who's trying to build a kibbutz in what is then palestine and she has this vision of a kind of agrarian socialist paradise and then it kind of covers four generations of her family as that vision gets engulfed by violence and kind of becomes hollowed out by a kind of realism and um, it's an absolutely brilliant, it's massive book. It's it, it it's one of a loose trilogy, and this is the second book in the trilogy. And I urge you to go and read them all because I think in a in, in a moment where global politics is sort of full of people who are very noisy and this book reminds us that actually if there's a difficult question there are no easy answers and at the root of all of these conflicts there are individual characters who are just trying to live their lives as best they can Um, and I think uh it's, it's very, very, very worth reading. And a wonderful book in its own right. I know I don't I'm not encouraging you read it just because of the 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 um the recent uh events, but it certainly gives it a kind of moral edge. So yeah, that's my first one. A Dharma by Lavi Tidhar, massive recommendation. I think it's funny
1: how um the whole idea of the kibbutz and the kibbutzim or kibbutzniks, um is sort of back in the back in the public consciousness in a way. I mean, it was something I remember from growing up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was a thing then. Um, and it was like, it, it was often sort of portrayed almost as like a sort of a, you know, the socialist paradise that that's what they were trying to create and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And ironically, a lot of those in the in the kibbutzes I know I'm sure that's the wrong word, but in the kibbutzes that, that were destroyed on the 7th of October, mm. a lot of those inhabitants of those kibbutzes were very left-wing and were very pro-Palestinian to a large extent. So it's kind of ironic that they were the ones that uh, bore the brunt of that attack by, uh, by Hamas. So, uh, But it's interesting that they're sort of back in the news in that way, because it's a word that I certainly hadn't really, you know, heard for a long time.
0: Mm. What they have, it's, it's they sort of cross-fertilised it, did they not, with the, the idea of just settlements, so the the word almost sort of developed, but now because it's 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 in the news, it's yeah, it's prevalent again, I guess. Yeah.
3: But then I think that's because, you know, there's the but the settlers and the kibbutzim are slightly different thing, aren't they? I mean, mm. we're straying into territory that it's a bit yeah. far away from what I'm I'm comfortable I'm, I'm kind talking about. But um, the original kibbutzim, as Roger said, had this. What we've forgotten is an incredibly utopian left wing yeah. socialist agrarian based Marxist view of what could be created in the desert. And
1: communal living and
3: communal and, living, yeah, all or that. the kids, the children were in like communal nurseries yeah. and this is one of the kind of really interesting things in the book because one of the characters in it is a boy who was basically brought up in a communal nursery in a kibbutz and just wanted his mum, right? So you know, all the it, it's it's the idea that um, it's very present in the book that uh, that, that ideologies have their limits and actually you know humans are kind of humans versus ideologies humans tend to lose I guess is that's a lovely point mm. <laughs> thank you mm. no it's true <laughs> no, but it's next so I, I really <laughs> recommend that um yes so go read it
1: great stuff roger okay um well my my next pick actually also has a um, obliquely a sort of Palestinian element to it, but um, it's um, Daniel Finkelstein's um, Hitler-Stalin Mum and Dad, which is his, uh, if you like, sort of dual biography of both of his parents and their life stories, um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's beautifully written, as you'd expect, um, given that Daniel Finkelstein, you know, writes for the Times every week, and that's his background as, primarily as a journalist, political journalist. Um, but uh, it, it actually illustrates um, an area of history that I've worked in a lot, you know, to, to, to some extent, sort of Polish history, Central European history, and brings that to a whole new audience, which I have, to, you know, you just have to applaud. Sometimes you just have to say that, you know, a book like that comes along and it does it very well and it reaches a very wide audience. And in the process, we would hope, um, you know, brings new new tranches of readers to, to other people writing in the field. So the two branches of the family, there's the Wiener family, who were German Jews, um, mm-hmm. who left Germany um, after Hitler came to power in 1933. They went to Holland. The the Wiener's two daughters there that grew up um, in quite close proximity to Anne Frank, for example, in uh, in Amsterdam. And the Wiener side, uh, Alfred Wiener became the, the founder of the, the Wiener Library in London, which is very well known. Um, he was a great pioneer of sort of collecting uh, evidence of the misdeeds of the Nazis, um, and that's what became the basis of the Wiener Library. Um, he was out of the country when the Germans invaded in 1940, so his wife and two children were left in Holland, were subsequently um, caught up in the, the ongoing sort of persecution of the Jews that leads to the Holocaust. And... They survive um, remarkably um, on forged Palestinian, uh, forged, sorry, forged Paraguayan passports, um, which a story which coincides, of course, with my recent book, *The Forgers*. But that's not why I recommend it. It is it is beautifully done. So on that side, you've got the Davina side survive on these Paraguayan passports. The Finkelstein side, which comes from Eastern Poland, comes from Lwów in Poland, suffers the other element of uh, sort of the central European Jewish experience which is deportation to Siberia uh, and Kazakhstan by Stalin. So hence the title Hitler-Stalin, Mum and Dad. Um, and in the process, you know, they spend something like two years in, in Siberia and Kazakhstan and then are uh, uh, brought back west uh, by a long circuitous route with the Anders army through Palestine and everything else. And it's a, it's an absolutely fascinating
0: Richard, uh, hello everyone. Now, instead of the Devil's Alliance, uh, I would like to uh, recommend <laughs> Conflict, uh, and this is a book by uh, Andrew Roberts and General Petraeus, uh, covering basically all the the minor wars uh, post Second World War, really. Uh, and it's a book of two halves, although uh, I believe you know both authors worked on the sort of manuscript entirely, but. The first half seems to be largely covered by Andrew Roberts, as I say, covering these kind of conflicts. There's great kind of thumbnail biographies. Uh, he's particularly good on Vietnam as well, not just the military aspect, but obviously the personalities and the, and the politics involved. And the second half then shifts uh, kind of in tone style structure where, you know, General Petraeus was, was basically had a bird's eye view of iraq and afghanistan and it's a great inside portrait of i don't know some of the sort of chaos and lack of planning Uh, You also, he's healthily critical of of administrations, both, you know, Republican and Democrat. And he's kind of a sympathetic towards the soldier, but also sympathetic towards kind of, you know, the people that that suffered uh, under these kind of regimes and and campaigns. And I believe, Ollie, you've read this as well.
2: I have. I I loved it,
0: actually. I really...
2: and it doesn't just cover the the minor conflicts. We're pretty much, um, I mean, there are a few, it's not mentioned, but there are major, you know, Vietnam War was a major conflict, and then, of course, Ukraine. But the Vietnam War, you're absolutely right to bring that one up. It's absolutely uh, fascinating reading a master of counterinsurgency talking about a war that did not really get to grips with the counterinsurgency as, 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 as well as it perhaps could have. Uh, and I think it's something that that war the Vietnam War is interesting to me because I think it's something that is in the deep core the the sort of the heart of America many Americans yeah. and it's something that we many of us don't really appreciate and so uh, to see to to read uh, Petraeus' account of of the Vietnam War, which is obviously a uh, clearly a uh, a conflict that. Is taught at West Point and many other academies um, of uh, what one would imagine how not to uh, to, to to do a, a war like that, and you know w- remains to be seen whether we'll see anything like that again. But the w- w- what I loved about the Vietnam War episode, and I'm sounding like I'm slightly obsessed with the Vietnam aspect of it, but that uh, writes about the Marine Corps had actually nailed how to do the counterinsurgency in Vietnam as opposed to Westmoreland and, and his uh, and, the, and the US Army and so I find that really interesting because it speaks very much to Petraeus' approach to Iraq, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan where his surge approach had a great success and
0: then of course it's always interesting to hear Petraeus' Uh, on current events. No, he talks with his. I mean, obviously, he's got natural authority, but he's actually an incredibly talented writer as well. Uh, you know, his job is is to communicate, and and he does that incredibly well. He does indeed.
2: I don't know if either of you have.
1: I mean, I think Andrew Roberts is always worth reading whatever he writes. To be honest, I think he's fa- he's a fantastic historian. Um, I mean, anything I'd say. I, I was mentioning Vietnam there, and uh, and you mentioned Ukraine as well. Um, it was interesting. On another podcast a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, the casualty figures, Russian casualty f- figures in Ukraine. Um, and it looks like, I mean, the, the figures are not entirely clear. It's a bit of a guess, but it looks like they're up, the death rate or the death figure for the for Russian soldiers is up above 100,000, um, which is an astonishing figure. That's more
2: course, than the Russians lost during the
1: uh, 10-year uh, war in Afghanistan you might really just rephrase that because it's more than the Americans lost in 10 years which is my point so that's more than the Americans lost in a decade in Vietnam that, that figures about I think 70,000 something like that yeah they um, lost 58,000 right okay it. so 60,000 sorry um, but you know that, I mean that shows you that's, yeah, but the Soviets that's in, in that's the Soviets in,
2: in Afghanistan
1: it's, oh, more than, it's
2: more than the Soviets lost in, in a 10 year
1: conflict in right,
2: Afghanistan so again,
0: which is often called their Vietnam
1: yeah, yeah exactly but that, but the, you know that that's in eighteen months of warfare, the Russians have lost by by that estimate hundred thousand people, and you think you said at the top there, the effect that the Vietnam War has had on American society and the American psyche or American politics, you know we can only guess. I mean, obviously it's a different situation. Russia isn't a democracy, all the rest of it, but there has to be a point at which those figures have a knock-on effect on Russian society and then on Russian politics, so we're kind of waiting to see what that's going to be mm-hmm. it, it might be even uglier than what we've already got
2: Yeah, we always assume that if Putin falls there'll be a... someone better
0: no, for us yeah. no, Well, even that America that. America needed a win after Vietnam and you know there was some sort of Small, you know, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies in the 80s and under Reagan, where you know, and obviously they they kind of won the Cold War, uh, but that's up for debate. But they will be looking to restore pride, even if it's you know they're trying to do it in Ukraine, but someone else could suffer because of that as well, yeah, in the region.
1: Um, I misunderstood you there, sorry, when you um, you were talking about Afghanistan. No, I'm I'm just, just, oh, right no props because I I thought you would So do we need do many we need to
2: people that? many people misunderstand me <laughs> now I will yeah, uh, yeah. I, I can re-edit <laughs> it could all be re-edited it's not like it's not going out live I, no, I go no. back and listen to it back and so then I, I, make I re- sense no I, I remove cut it I remove any insults to me. I, I <laughs> all your arms remain in mine. Get removed.
1: Yours are all, so you're just mm. you're just perfect. Yeah. The rest yeah. Of us are blue Everyone blue. goes. God, who are these idiots? <laughs> <just got> <laughs> a- <laughs> Why are you stooping to deal with these?
2: Yes, I know. <laughs> right. Um, so I think we've done all. Our, we've all done our first book. So I guess this sets a trend. So we'll just keep on going a book each. And my next one takes us back into the dark ages of the ancient world and so my my next book of the year is uh, Homer and his Iliad uh, written by Robin Lane Fox and for those particularly sensitive may have detected a theme in uh, the title of the book which is Homer and his Iliad i.e. there has been some kind of debate over whether Homer was a man, a series of people. A Some have suggested Homer could have been a woman, but uh, Robin Lane Fox in his book has firmly put his colours to the mask. Homer was a man writing in the 8th century, which is a little bit earlier uh, in the early 8th century. I, I, th- I think he writes in the book. So it's a little bit earlier than um, uh, many other scholars have written about but this this book, I, I picked this because I absolutely of all the ancient, ancient authors, Homer's is certainly my favourite and the Iliad of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Iliad would be the one I would take to a desert island and it, I took it to my version of a desert island when I went for my year out when I was uh, uh, an archaeologist in Central America and it was very special to me Because I'd read it when I was at an impressionable age And so reading this book That um, Lane Fox Who's a very uh, distinguished histor- Ancient historian he Wrote brilliant biography of Alexander the Great And has written Many great books And this book I think really captures For those who love the Iliad Which I do He it's just uh, the assessments from someone who just really knows what he's talking about. And just to read it is just a great joy.
3: I think everybody is either Iliad or Odyssey, aren't they? I mean, I'm Iliad, definitely, so I'm going to have to read this. <laughs> I, I'm the Aeneid. <laughs> oh, you're always a contrarian. <laughs> now, that's definitely getting edited out. No yeah. one can be for the Aeneid. <laughs> Uh, No, I do think there's plagiarism. That though, I think you're either someone who who is drawn to the Odyssey or you're drawn to the Iliad. And I think I'm absolutely in your camp on this one, Ollie. Well, the other thing to read this. The other
2: thing I wanted to mention was as you're reading it, because obviously it's written about a hugely traumatic war amongst two different um, groups of people, and you do. In the beginning of the book There's an opening quote Which is from Oliver Stone Who himself fought in Vietnam And who Robin Lane Fox knows Through work in Hollywood But um, you know You do think of of contemporary wars And the war in Ukraine You know there's a huge amount of pathos In the Iliad And Fury, all sorts of emotions are, 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 are stirred in the Iliad and it does make you think of t- contemporary events as well which is why I think it's a very relevant book to to um, for it to be published and it is a fantastic book to read and I, I couldn't recommend it enough really
3: well I'm sold it's on my list for Christmas please Santa if you're listening
2: uh, so well Antonia what, what is on your other uh, well you actually you must have read it so it won't be on your list what could we it'd be on our lists
3: well uh, so I want to talk about Elodie, Elodie Harper's Temple of Fortuna which is the third and concluding book in her trilogy about Amara who is a prostitute in um, ancient Pompeii so we're continuing the ancient theme Um. I think it's one of the best historical trilogies i've read ever i think it's wonderful i think it's completely immersive it puts you right in there if where you want to be you're just looking at me suspiciously if where you want to be is a brothel in pompeii you're right in the middle of the action um no it's a wonderful book um i was worried for her because it felt a bit like when you were reading the third book in the henry mantel trilogy that you knew you know the ending right there's no spoiler alerts here You knew that Cromwell was going to die. With Elodie Harper's book, you know that Pompeii is going to get obliterated by Vesuvius. So your question mark is, I know it's going to happen as the reader. You know it's going to happen as the writer. Can you pull this off? And the answer is yes. She pulled it off completely, triumphantly. The last, I guess, fictional take on Pompeii I read was Robert Harris's Pompeii, which is, what, 10 years ago, more? Which I thought was... And I'm a big Robert Harris fan. I thought that was distinctly average. Elodie absolutely smashes it. It's completely brilliant. You are with them all the way as the burning rocks rain upon their heads and the sun is blotted out. And Pompey, the you know the general, the, the, the admiral is um, not Pompey. What's his name? Pliny. 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 The admiral Pliny. is kind of lying on the floor, like sort of you know. I just can't tell you how good it is, and I urge you all to read the book. And I my kids to Pompeii in October just gone and um, I felt... Half
2: like term you didn't take them out of school?
3: No, half term obviously darling, no I didn't <laughs> take them out of school even for <laughs> classical education purposes um, and I felt like uh, 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 with Elodie's kind of works in my back pocket it gave everything a kind of useful perspective and I, I, I thank her for that, it, she's great.
2: Is this the third in a trilogy? It's
3: the third in the trilogy absolutely fantastic and I, I really recommend it I mean I'm, I'm, I'm looking around at my, my fellow panelists thinking not many of you have, have read a trilogy about a, a Roman prostitute, I, I promise you'd like it and it has a wonderful, this one has a fantastic cameo from um, Domitian the kind of evilest of the emper- emperors, it's brilliant
0: He's. I mean I think uh, was, a book about a, a Roman prostitute she was always going to pull it off <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, and she did! I, I must so defend Robert Harris's Pompeii book, I, I thought was excellent better than these other Roman books. The Earth moved. Oh. oh, you don't like the Cicero ones? I don't think. I think the first Cicero book is excellent, but then they turned into hagiographies. Wow, um.
3: controversial. I, I thought the Cicero books were really good. I agree with you, they get weaker. But I thought his Pompeii book. Sorry, Robert Harris. I love you, but it was my least favourite of all your books I just thought it was a bit meh and how you can be meh if you're doing one of the most important kind of ruptures of all time and I elise Harper's version is not meh and the thing I love about her as well she's entirely unsentimental so you know love doesn't conquer all you know <laughs> she's brilliant anyway read it
2: great stuff Roger
3: right um, I'm
1: shamelessly drag us back to the 20th century, uh, which is my stomping ground, but I am talking about the last book of a trilogy, so there is a beautiful uh, symmetry there um, to, our, to our previous pick uh, of <laughs> Um So my my next book is uh, Frank McDonough's, um The Weimar Years, The History of the Weimar Republic, uh, 1918-33. Um, Frank is a uh, former academic now retired he's spent many decades in, in academia up in the uh, John Moore's University in Liverpool um, has become one of the nation's authorities on the Third Reich uh, if you've seen any of those sort of documentaries on the, on television or the wilder reaches of satellite television you've probably seen Frank um, if you've seen the Scouser talking about Hitler you've probably seen Frank um, and he's uh, he's you know, he really knows his stuff. He writes very, very well, uh, really accessible, um, very thoroughgoing. And he brings all of those sort of um, years of scholarship to bear in this uh, in this trilogy. Um, and the last one, it kind of, to some extent, it went backwards. He did the Hitler years, he did the War years, and now it's the Weimar years. So he's just kind of talking about the run-up to Hitler's seizure of power in 1933 uh, and the reasons for the failure of Weimar. And... Um, and of course, what was good about Weimar, which is certainly in his opinion, and I think that's—I think it's justifiable—there are some great positives in Weimar that tend to get forgotten in the sort of rush to damn that particular political system and that republic uh, because of what it ultimately gave birth to. Um, and he makes the point as well that they, you know sort of. Um, more fundamental failings perhaps is a lack of certain lack of belief in in democracy and the democratic system um i mean my argument always on the on the fall of weimar is that it's primarily economics it's that sort of old you know clinton argument that it's the it's the economy stupid um i think that's the primary reason i think his view is a bit more nuanced than that which is fair enough but you know he brings all of that scholarship to bear beautifully illustrated, beautifully written volume, um, and yeah, absolutely, deserves to be on that on that list. Was
2: that your favourite part of the book?
1: My favourite part of the book is uh, when you talk about 1923, so 100 years ago, almost to the day that we're talking, if you start talking about the hyperinflation, 1923 is a really, really important year, and I actually, in the previous session that we had six months ago, I talked about uh, Mark Jones' book, 1923. Um, which is fantastic which looks at that year in isolation Frank writes about 1923 in this book with, with great aplomb and using lots of lovely original sources and it's, a, and it's such a turning point as well because that was you know it could have been a very very short lived I- experiment I mean I
0: think it's my favourite part of the book as well A uh, push oh very good very good
2: I hope listeners got that Oh, I didn't get it. At a putch. a Wow.
3: Very good, very good.
0: Wow.
2: <laughs>
1: wow. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: I hope Frank would get that <laughs> I didn't hear
0: it I thought he well it was a,
2: it was a mixed up. well I'm glad you mentioned Mark Jones' 1923 I know it's not on our um, list to talk about but he wrote for us and his book I know you are a big fan of yeah. Roger in yeah. fact it was off the back of our chat in, halfway through the year that I got in touch with him to get yeah it. I mean that's another
1: great book I mean that's again I have to say, I mean, Frank falls into the same category, Frank now retired, but Mark Jones, I have to preface this by saying, for an academic, he writes really well, you know, I mean, academics almost have writing skills thrashed out of them, let's be honest, uh, by the rigours of, of uh, writing for academia, and, and Mark writes really, really well, um, so, you know, I know that's probably damning with faint praise, but... Um
2: it is, but we're all for
1: that,
0: Uh, Richard. Well, I was about to uh, talk about spies by Corda Wharton, but I've just been slid uh, a piece of paper to say, mention the forgers uh, by Roger Morehouse. And I'll let the listeners guess uh, who has has slid me that piece of paper. But uh, I know we touched upon uh, the forgers in in the previous uh, half of the year, but that was actually when the the book, uh, uh, before it came out, and obviously, it came out. Uh, I think around mid-August, uh, it came out to rave reviews, uh, lovely sales, and most of us around this table have, have read, kind of enjoyed the book. But it does now, kind of unwittingly and depressingly, contain more relevance with with what's going on. I mean, obviously in in Israel, but also I would argue far more in this country, where a fair few people need to be educated about the Holocaust. Those people who's kind of uh, bandy around the word, you know, Nazi Holocaust and make these kind of false comparisons. Uh, so, for that reason alone, I'd kind of recommend the forgers as uh, a book that obviously is about some uh, decent and efficient uh, civil servants and bureaucrats on that alone there's, uh, they're unicorns almost <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's just incredibly uh, I mean that just the portrait of the Holocaust and I think i would even said to Roger you know I think one day he should uh, right, history of the Holocaust, and hopefully there's some publishers out there, will give them a load of money to do so because it will be a great book. But this book does touch uh, upon sort of some general lessons of the Holocaust, which are resonating at the moment about the indifference of, of some people. Uh, the old sort of enemy and disease of anti-Semitism uh, was prevalent then, and unfortunately, it's depressingly prevalent now. So if there are anyone perhaps tempted to go on a march soon and sort of in one hand uh, hold a kind of terrorist sympathiser's hand and in the other, an ill-judged placard, uh, you may want to read Roger's book because it will give you a slight education.
3: I couldn't agree more with Richard there, sorry. I mean, this isn't a blow-smoke-up-Roger's-ass session, but (laughs) it is a wonderful book. Um, um, And the revelation to me reading it was... um, I hadn't i think appreciated the fact that the holocaust was so (coughs) legalistic and bureaucratic like this was not something that i had really kind of uh understood that evil could be so sort of you know paper and pen based i guess yeah. One, uh, you know, you you have this sort of like notion maybe that it's a sort of you know almost organic because that makes it better, but no, it's the fact that it was so legalistic, and I thought that was so interesting. And actually, just picking up on one of the earlier books that we've talked about, Danny Finkelstein uh, wrote a column in the newspaper where he talked about um, the fact that his family had originally been not Zionist, and then World War Two happened. And one of the camps was liberated. Was liberated. I can't remember which. And I'm sorry for that. But one of the camps was liberated, and the the Allied soldiers liberating it said, "You're free to go." And the Jewish prisoner said, "Where do we go?" Right? And I just think you can't. Like every single time you have an opinion about what's happening now in the Middle East, just remember that guy in the fucking striped pajamas saying, "Where do we go?" that's, you know, and I think we get that point very strongly from Roger's book, The Forgers as well as obviously uh, Danny's book about his family um, yeah, and I think the, 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 it, the, it's important to read some books right now.
1: I, I think that's absolutely right, and um, thanks guys That's very kind, but um, I think one of the reasons behind you know, where we are at the moment with this sort of recrudescence of anti-Semitism in particularly among the young uh, in Western countries, um, I think is in part because there's been you know, a collective forgetting about the Holocaust. Um, in spite of all of that you know being on the school curriculum and all the rest of it as it has been, um, I think it's sort of slipped from public memory to a large extent. It was very much you know, the intellectual furniture for us growing up. Um, and I think it's a little bit slipped from memory. It seems like ancient history to, uh, to our generation. Do you think that's inevitable,
3: in one sense, though? Because, you know, genocides of history have not, for our generation, who are a bit older than a lot of the people marching, right? For our generation, genocides of history are not the same as the Holocaust. We can maybe even joke about them, right? But the Holocaust holds a special place in the kind of pantheon of horror, right? Mm. But maybe that's just a function of the fact that we're of a certain age and there were survivors and it was talked about and it was an issue. I mean maybe it's just, you know, part of time passing that it it becomes and I hate to say I even saying it makes me want makes me feel slightly ill, but it becomes just another genocide.
0: I think also it's it's manifested itself in a different way in a sense since the 1930s and, and post war where it's been a, uh, you know, a disease largely but not exclusively propagated by, you know, sections of, of the left, uh, which is slightly different What well, anti-Semitism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that's probably been a bit problematic for, uh, you know, certain, I don't know, you might call them academic bodies, institutions, where they're, you know, perhaps wrestling with things that they shouldn't.
3: yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, right. And it's an extraordinary thing that we're all looking at now, isn't it? Where we see e- people siding with forces of anti-Semitism that we thought were dead. Mm. And they're alive, and marching down yeah. the streets towards Whitehall. And is, it's extraordinary.
2: So I'll, I agree with everything you're saying. But one thing I would say is that I I, I looked at social media and saw these marches and, and you know on social media and would completely agree, yes it's littered with anti-Semitism, but I did actually go down to Vauxhall Bridge last Saturday and I was uncomfortable with the march even happening, but I did go down to have a look just because I didn't want to uh, get all the information off the dreaded social media and listeners know my view on that but uh, I didn't uh, there, there were, there were chance of from the river to the sea, which I would guesstimate at around ten percent, which is too much. But for the, for the, many of the people I who I did see, a lot of them were, you know, most of them, the vast majority were very peaceful, and it was very chilled out, and so I can only say what I saw, mm.
3: and and I would, and I,
2: I think a lot of them are misguided.
3: And I would 100% support their right to march because I support freedom of speech, but I also support my right to think that it's a dick move.
2: Yeah, yeah. I No, I get that completely. All I'm saying is that if one gets your news from social media, you will assume that the majority yeah. are raging as anti-Semites. And that I think that there, there are a lot on these marches. Yeah. I just don't think it's the majority.
0: And that it's was- uh, incredibly difficult to separate the cretins from the yeah, I think that's
3: right But it's also, but I do think it's also incumbent on us Those of us who are deeply worried about anti-Semitism To also, you know, pause and think about the fact That there are also quite a lot of Palestinians Who don't want to be dictated to by Hamas Who are having a fucking terrible time as well And we have so, to
2: acknowledge yeah, is, the, the large number of civilians being killed
3: Right, and this is one of the reasons why I, I, I put forward the book that I did But that it that the idea that there are any simple solutions to this Is insane and it is difficult and intractable and one of the problems of our time and maybe me saying that and not having a solution or not even pretending to have a solution is a cop out but I think it's more honest than anybody who pretends that this can be solved by a ceasefire or by eradicating Hamas because you know you eradicate Hamas and you create a million other Hamases I mean you know yeah. it's not well, I, 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 are impossible
1: yeah I mean I have you a lot. you can't
3: kill
2: an idea with bombs no. and guns I mean I have I, I've I've got Uh, many problems from a sort of you know, military or strategic or whatever. I'm not a general, of course, but I've got a lot of problems with what Israel's doing because you're just going to create more terrorists, yeah. and, and, and even physically, you're building um, sniper holes yeah. and a Stalingrad for yeah. Israeli yeah, forces. Warfare so warfare like
1: that is perfect for you know asymmetric yeah. warfare, which is what they what they want, I think, mean, effectively. Yeah. yeah,
3: but isn't this one of those situations where you're fucking glad you're an armchair general, and not a real general? Because what are you supposed to do? Yeah. You what you let them keep the hostages and get away with it? No. Will you go in? No. Like so what do you so do? what do you do? Well they I have know. to try
0: and a bit going back to some of the lessons of, of conflict of, of Petraeus and Roberts and it is that old cliche of to try and win hearts and minds. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, one of the most incredibly difficult parts of the world to do that. I mean, yeah. nothing's impossible but it's it's knocking on the door of it.
2: I fear that ship sailed. I think yeah. uh, the hearts and minds thing's not possible. Well, as
0: a long-term solution?
2: Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I I you know, if you're going to talk about ceasefire, then which I I I just don't think is realistic. I haven't heard anyone or maybe there are some, but I haven't heard anyone calling for ceasefire mentioning release the hostages. And that could be a first step, mm. but um I haven't heard anyone suggest I
3: mean, that. It's- you know it's got to be the the starting point for any Israeli bargaining position hasn't it release the hostages Mm. they're babies yeah but
2: but do we hear that in the parliamentary motion that just did not get passed in, in, in Parliament? Yeah, we didn't.
0: I mean, one thing to bring it back to some books as well <laughs> uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the story of, of the region and, and what's going on now, it's, it's obviously uh, completely intertwined with history. So I would urge people if they haven't already because it's sold God knows how many copies to read Jerusalem by Simon C. Back Fury. Yeah, right. yeah good call. Cool. Yeah.
2: And I did a special podcast on Israel Palestine, which has had some positive comments. So, you go, if you're man, not. The conflict is all about Oliver Webb, it's <laughs> listeners, Richard, and learn a little bit more before delivering emphatic statements. Hey, hey. Right, moving on from that. Can we pick something slightly more positive? (laughs) Let me see. What do we have on our list? I've got
3: something really disgusting.
2: (laughs) When you say disgusting, (laughs) it's
3: not not a rash.
2: (laughs) Okay, not a rash, great. Go with that.
3: My book of the year uh, that I picked for the Times, and I'm going to double it up here, is a book called um, The Glutton by A.K. Blakemore. It's a weird. Batshit extraordinary brilliant book about. I know I'm doing a lot of swearing. just whispering. I'm doing a lot little... sorry listeners. You can only can edit it out. I mean, as you choose. No, swear. I can
2: put an explicit marker on the podcast, <laughs> and then it For doesn't get cancelled. Yeah, really, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Maybe I should just try to swear less. <laughs> um, note to self. Anyway, so uh, the book is about a um, performing glutton in the French revolutionary eras and this is a based on a real character called Tarare I don't know how to s- say it who basically eats anything and everything and when we meet him he's dying in a hospital bed because he ate a really big fork um, and then he's telling is his story
1: a, there used to be a guy called Monsieur Mange 2 who was like recently? He used to be on television. Right. He used to literally eat like a chandelier.
3: Yeah. No. So this is what this guy does, but it's like more. of so a tradition. Yeah. That's and crazy. It, so, it, but but so A.K. Blakemore is a poet, and it's the most beautifully written. Honestly, it's incredible. That the imagery she uses. So the one that sticks in my mind is when the young Tarare discovers his he has a talent for eating everything. He's in a bar. And somebody throws a dead rat at his feet, and this giant dead rat sits there, and everybody's like, "Eat the rat, eat the rat." So he just like opens up his gullet. And it, in AK Blackmore's description, she says, "The dry peppercorn eyes of the rat watch the boy as he opens up his gullet, and, and, and like I can't you know I can't remember the rest of it, but it was just the dry peppercorn eyes of the rat. And, it, and then he sort of crunches down this rat in and eats it and the whole audience is like throwing up and like cheering and it's this it's incredible important. exploration of how humans are both revolted and delighted by yeah. disgusting things yeah. it's so weird so bonkers and so utterly brilliant i am
0: uh, i was just blown away by this book if there are any uh, children listening please don't eat a fork <laughs> It's the problem thing to do.
3: (laughs) It is the problem thing to do. If you want to eat a rat, by all means.
2: I remember reading in the nineties about a guy who ate an airplane, but
3: Yeah, that was the same guy. (laughs) Surely
2: there's some have launched oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, well, you know, this sounds like really... They, they I, got him on when Yuri Geller was busy. But I'm definitely going to get that for a family member for Christmas, I think. Because there's someone in particular I think would enjoy that. He c- describes himself as a hedonist. Um, so perhaps he needs some... Um, there's the
3: limits of your heaven yes exactly I mean it, it, I, I can't quite if any of you have read um, Patrick Susskind's perfume it's slightly resonant of that it's a the the, um, the way she gets across both the kind of disgustingness and the beauty of being human is an incredible thing I'm back to the rash now that I don't have I'm quite tempted by that the way you've sold that I think that
1: was brilliant
3: yeah she's awesome I um, I, I feel a bit guilty because obviously as I say I I do review historical fiction for the Times and her first book was about witches and I kind of swerved it because I'd read so many books about witches Mm. and then I realised afterwards that I'd made a mistake because it was a very good book and I read it later and this one uh, Is absolutely brilliant, and I think she's an absolute star. I think she's going to go all the way. She's she's the real deal.
2: Great stuff. So
1: I think Roger. Yes. Back to the 20th century...
2: (laughs) Are you astonished, Funny, (laughs) (laughs) all All three... Listeners, all three choices, if you haven't picked up uh, 20th century. 20th
1: century, central Europe. Uh,
2: (laughs) Involving Second World War or pre-Second World War? Pre-Second
1: World War. So the the last one one for me is uh, Anna Reid, A Nasty Little War, it's called, which is about the Allied intervention... Um, at the end of the uh, uh, Russian Revolution, um, so for those that don't know, the Allies collectively—that's you know the British, the French, the Americans, the Japanese—invade uh, in various places across from from Vladivostok to Archangel to you know the the Caucasus uh, to try and, as as Churchill put it, strangle the Bolshevik baby in its crib, which is such a you lovely line so so Churchill, it's a bit of
3: a shame he didn't manage to on the ball yeah absolutely,
1: absolutely. <laughs> but it, and it's
2: was Churchill point. the driver behind the British uh, intervention um,
1: to some extent I suppose it's, it was bigger than Churchill but I think he was probably one of the, one of the drivers there yeah. um, but it, the, what's, what's interesting about it is a number of things the first thing is that you know, the western powers collectively were pretty much tired of war by 1919, 1920, right, they were kind of done. So there's this sense of sort of ennui that that comes across in the book. And it's, I mean, by the way, it's beautifully written, it's absolutely beautifully written. Um, So the sense of ennui and just kind of, you know, to, to some extent going through the motions and being corrupted by being in, you know, revolutionary Russia, which was a kind of a mess of the place, you know, we already brought to the revolution. Um, so th- there's all sorts of elements where they just can't be doing this anymore, um, and yet they're trying to, you know, trying to, de- you know, defeat the, uh, the Bolsheviks. Um, so there's all of that element to it. And then I think crucially, I think this plays into an element which comes back to the present day, which is that you know we talk, we talk a lot, or Russia talks a lot now about you know this fear of encirclement and its fear of. It's fear of Western intervention and Western invasion. and The rest of the world looking out says, well, hang on, you're the aggressor here. You're the ones that have invaded Ukraine. But this is because it's so ingrained in the Russian mentality that they are the victims. And it goes back to a large extent to, to that episode of the Allied intervention. So this is actually a really crucial moment, a crucial episode in the creation, if you like, we can call it, you know, the Russian psyche. Uh, of how Russia sees the world and how Russia, in in particular, sees the Western world. So it's really important in that respect to how we view today and how how Russia views the the war in Ukraine and everything else. Um, so that that's really pertinent. But it's just a beautifully written, beautifully well researched history book, and I, I really recommend it. Yeah, it's interesting
2: because when you add 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 into the fact that they lost what twenty odd million in. The Second World
1: War, more, yeah, more, yeah, oh, more.
2: Well, that's well, the, twenty-five well, is
0: well,
1: conservative, isn't it? Not? Yeah, that's that. We have to be careful yeah, with those figures right. because this is. You know, I could I could go on. Um, you know, Russia, the state of Russia and the Russian Federation has kind of taken the mantle of the Soviet Union. Um, the figure of whatever it was, twenty-six million war dead, was a Soviet figure. Was the Soviet Union? Wasn't Russia? Right? The vast majority of those were non-Russians. So Russia has kind of, by sleight of hand, because it's set itself up, the Russian Federation sets itself up as the successor state to the Soviet Union. It's kind of taken the mantle of those 26 million, however many it was, war dead and said those were ours, those were Russians. They weren't Russians. Right? At least 8 million of those were Ukrainians. They're also Bolts, they're also Bielorussians, they're you know, Georgians every other nation under the sun within the Russian Federation and beyond. So we have to be careful of that sleight of hand, because Putin's regime is quite happy to say, you know, 26 million Russian war dead, and to instrumentalise that and use it as a weapon. It's simply not true.
3: So we have to be very careful with that.
2: Um, A very important distinction. Thank you, Roger.
3: Um, I can't wait to read that book, because I've been completely obsessed with that, the Allies' intervention in in the Russian Civil War since... do you guys know about Derek Robinson who's like the best writer of historical fiction of the 20th century the ex-pilot yeah well he was piece of cake yes piece of cake um, Gosford Squadron absolutely brilliant superb writer, unbelievably good and he wrote a fantastic but I think actually self-published and very overlooked book called A Splendid Little War about exactly this it was about a volunteer RAF unit who were who were out fighting for the white Russians mm-hmm and sort of in typical Derek Robinson style don't really know why they're there don't really care just getting pissed quite cross yes. so that
1: comes like, across as well in Anna Reid's book that they just, just it, it's play. almost like an adventure
3: yeah and, then, and at the game. same time
1: you know they're, they're all tired of war and the whole thing is kind of corrupt and it's yeah. all insane uh, and that really comes across very, very strongly in the
3: book brilliant can't wait second book that I'm putting on my Christmas list out of our ones we've done today that's a That's a win. Yeah, it's a win. It's
2: interesting how novels can really help you understand the the history side of it. Because that just makes... You know, that makes me think of a really good novel that I read about the phony war called Sword of Bone, written by a person who fought in the phony war. And... He, yeah, it's all a great lark they're all fighting in the phony war hang on uh, what well he's drinking champagne and eating oysters and he's uh, travelling through that's France what is. made you relate <laughs> because because he and he travels to the Maginot line yeah so I you know this sounds like the kind of war I want to be involved yeah, in I'm in and he, so he's travelling around France with his great French mate you know and they're having a world of a time smart uniforms women love them and then no it gets to nineteen forty 1914 It's not that funny anymore <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, it, it helps you understand I think a little bit more than maybe sometimes A, a history book no, can convey true. That true. kind true. of stuff But maybe not as well as a novel Anyway yeah. uh, it's, right. a, it's a gateway drug
1: to, to real history
2: It is
3: Or it is. history's a gateway drug to the really top novels
2: <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Antonio, <laughs> very important to say that Thank you <laughs> Right, where are we, uh, Richard? You've been, you've only, you've only, I think, done how many?
0: No, he's done no two. Well, uh, two.
2: Come uh, on, don't, don't be shy. Uh,
0: well, as a sort of clever or clumsy link from what Roger was saying about uh, kind of Russian, uh, Russian encirclement, paranoia, and oppression, <laughs> I dare say it started earlier with Napoleon's invasion, and they were the great kind of saviours of you know, civilization from Napoleon. Uh, But everyone was a bit ungrateful and then turned upon him. And so that was 1812, which is the same year as Sharp's command. Uh, So Bernard Cornwall has uh, another new book out. And although it's not the best uh, Sharp novel, I'd argue, kind of Bernard Cornwall, even not at his best, uh, is still better than most, if not all. And I loved it. I mean, I read the Sharp books when, I dare say, my teenage years and this is books kind of set, kind of mid chronology of, of, of the kind of sharp series. And it was great, it's very nostalgic. I mean, it had all the ingredients of the kind of Bernard Cornwall novel and I felt, and I actually felt like younger reading it. Uh, I just need a book that makes me feel slimmer. And then uh, uh, I don't think even Bernard Cornwall's capable of that. But in terms of a kind of stocking filler, uh, a, a boy's own story, Uh, Just read another Sharp book. Whether it's this new one, uh, Sharp's Command, or or go back and and read one of the others. I think... Did you reread Sharp's Waterloo recently, Ollie? I did. Uh, It's probably... I don't know. I keep on going through
2: phases of which Sharp is my favourite. I mean, he's just... Sharp's just such a great character. He's just so brilliantly... uh, There's so much to him uh, that... And funnily enough Developed by the TV show Which is mm. I mean I loved Shark's Waterloo Because You know That's the epic showdown Between Wellington And Napoleon And we're in Napoleon season With Ridley Scott's movie Which I've seen And it's a lot of fun It's a lot of fun um, We won't discuss The hist- history behind it But It won't take long no. <laughs> But Sharp's. sharp, Sharp is just. Any Sharp is good. And I just. Uh, Sharp's Waterloo is not my favourite. My favourite is actually Sharp's Company, I think. Or Sharp's. Regiment.
3: I like the ones when he's in India. Oh. Yeah, they're good. But can I just say. No, that. they're not right. Can wow. I. That I, is faint as it? I know, did you hear that? But I would say Sharp's Command. I read Sharp's Command. Um, I love Sharp I love Burn of Cornwall I love Burn of Cornwall actually if you you know if, if I had to e- pin my colours to the mask Sharp would not be actually my favourite Burn of Cornwall series it would be Uhtred son of Uhtred um, oh dear I know sorry but we're going to have we're going to like literally fight it out afterwards I'll have a broadsword or Ollie will have a musket or some <laughs> shit oh no a rifle oh Christ a rifle um Sharp's command was not a strong book in the oeuvre. I will, but I agree with Richard. Bernard Cornwall writing at seventy percent of his capacity is still better than ninety-nine point five percent of the people out there who want to be Bernard Cornwall. So yeah, read Sharp's command. It's great.
2: Yeah, great stuff. Right. I think. Have we got any more to do? I think I've got one. You've got one. So. I wanted to mention this because I think this is just on the cusp of when we were doing our uh, uh, Books of the Year at half time uh, uh, you know, halfway through the year and I, I want and I, I actually uh, been thinking about this book a lot particularly since October the 7th because, you know the ongoing horrors in the Middle East it's not directly comp- comparable at all because you know there there are so many other different factors and history i suppose but operation chiffon by peter taylor which describes the intelligence the work of the intelligence services in uh in the uh, on the british side working with in particular one man who risked his life Um, from the Catholic community in Londonderry, Derry, in Northern Ireland. And so as a result of this sort of 30-year-long process, um, we're we're a vital factor in reaching a peace agreement in Northern Ireland, which whilst whilst many people, you know, because this, this year is the 25th year of... Uh, The 25th anniversary of The Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement Is At the time people didn't think it would end Which is I'm sure what people think in the Middle East Right now so You know it, 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 uh, It just requires people to take a risk We've seen Moderates in the Middle East being Assassinated for wanting to take That risk and unfortunately that's what it Requires in Northern Ireland Many people lost their lives And Peter Taylor's book is brilliant at explaining the sort of secret side of what is needed in order to allow politicians to meet. And one hopes that that's happening at the moment. And it needs to happen if it isn't, because it's the only way you get out of this mess.
3: Ollie, that sounds brilliant, but... My stocking's only so big. I haven't got room for. I'm gonna. <laughs> How am I gonna get that one as well? You can get How it on Kindle. Get Kindle. It does sound amazing.
2: Uh, Peter I- Taylor is a master journalist of Northern Ireland, mm. and actually, you know, I put I put some of my podcasts out on um, YouTube. Mm. This uh, the conversation with him it blows everything out of the water. Saw, really? Yeah, thousands and thousands of of viewers of a only uh, audible. Um, conversation um, so yes that's that's. I think uh, a little bit of a message of hope maybe
1: yeah I hope you're right I mean I think I think there was a sense of um, tiredness thanks in Roger Island, in Northern Ireland uh, which you know contributed to that those conversations that were so war weariness but when do you get but you know but when when do we get to war weariness in the Middle East it just seems to I have got a
3: joke to (laughs) Uh, himself
0: hopefully I remember it correctly so uh, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev uh, go to God and say God when will there be peace between the United States and the Soviet Union Uh, and God says there will be peace but not in your lifetimes. And then we have uh, Jerry Adams, and then Ian Paisley goes to God and says, God, will there ever be peace in Northern Ireland? And God says, there will be peace, but not in your lifetime. And then finally, Ariel Sharon uh, and Yasser Arafat goes to God and said, God, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? And God says, there will be peace, but not in my lifetime.
3: yeah but god so true it's not always funny
2: (laughs) (laughs) well on that happy note
3: hang on can I I just say one more happy note of course just that um, I was talking to my daughter this morning she's obsessed she's nine she's obsessed with Norse mythology and she was talking about Valhalla and I said oh would you like to go to Valhalla and she said oh I don't know mum it's just a load of middle aged blokes drinking beer and talking about war and uh, I think
1: I've just
2: been
3: doing that for an hour and a half and actually it's quite fun I mean we're in Valhalla
2: oh yeah we're in Valhalla <laughs> oh that's such a yeah that's a great way to end it we have despite the subject matter listeners we have had a great time talking about it I hope you've enjoyed us listening I just want to thank you very much for listening I will put a list of all the books um, spoken about in the episode today in the show notes. That includes links, so you can go straight to them. There are links to episodes that we've spoken about as well, particularly the the Nazi-Soviet pact that that Roger and I had a, a, a great discussion on. And never forget that Roger was my first ever guest
3: and forget.
2: and he was he was so kind to me
3: wow kind to you yes, <laughs>
2: listeners thank you very much for listening and and plenty of great books out there thank you very much for listening i hope you can forgive some of the guests for not paying attention to the mic that was sitting right in front of them links to all we discussed are in the show notes Plenty more great history to come, including World War II Italy on Saturday with James Holland. Until then, thank you and good night.